0: Welcome to Succession Stories, insights for next generation entrepreneurs. I'm Lori Barkman. I've spent my career bringing an entrepreneurial approach to mature companies struggling with change. As an outside executive of a third generation, 120 year old company, I was part of a long-term succession plan. Now I work with entrepreneurs, privately held companies, and family businesses to develop innovations that create enterprise value and transition plans to achieve their long-term goals. On this podcast, listen in while I talk with entrepreneurs who are driving innovation and culture change. I speak with owners who successfully transition their company and others who experience disappointment along the way. Guests also include experts in multi-generational businesses and entrepreneurship. If you are a next generation entrepreneur looking for inspiration to grow and thrive, or an owner who can't figure out the best way to transition their closely held company, this podcast is for you. Subscribe to our newsletter for more resources to build value in your business. Visit small.big.com. That's small, D-O-T, big.com and sign up today. A few months ago, I invited listeners to submit questions and a few were about CEO succession. To explore this topic, I invited Bruce Walton onto the show. Bruce is a partner at Battaglia Winston, one of the world's largest woman-owned executive search firms and an expert at recruiting CEO C-suite and private company boards. We talked about five best practices for recruiting external executives, competencies in a post-COVID world and hiring up for the long-term. Whether you are a founder, owner or board member or an incoming CEO, it's about fostering respect, rapport and stewardship. Succession takes time to get right and a hurried plan may be destined to fail. Bruce, thanks so much for joining me today. I am excited to talk to you about a topic that is on the minds of many owners and next generation leaders alike, be they family or professional outside CEOs. And the topic is letting go. Will a CEO let go? When is it time to go? It's such a critical topic for succession. And the very first episode of this podcast, I don't know if you know this, I talked with an outside CEO. And that was also my work experience. And you have so many amazing years of experience working with family-owned businesses to recruit C-level executives and CEOs for those companies. I'm super excited that you're here today because I know that you've seen it all. So welcome.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: So why don't we start by you telling us about Battaglia Winston, the firm that you're a part of, the family owned practice that you
1: help lead and your experience. Sure, Battaglia Winston is headquartered in New York. We're about a 60 year old firm. We're female owned, which makes us somewhat unique. We're sort of a mid-sized firm and we're a firm of multiple specialists. And so we have a very strong biotech pharma practice probably the biggest practice in the firm is the industrial practice. And the family-owned business practice is, is really headed by a, a fellow out in the Chicago area and me. And we focus our attention, it's probably over half of my business, but we focus our attention on multi-generational family companies, primarily at the CEO level, but also at the direct report to the CEO level. Wonderful,
0: and. For you and your experience, you've been working in this field for for how long?
1: About 35 years. The quick history on me, out of college, I was in in the Navy for a couple of years as an officer, then came back, worked for Ted Hood, a sailmaker up in Marblehead, Mass., and then went back to business school at Harvard and uh, joined IBM. So I spent seven years uh, with banks and insurance companies selling for IBM. And then I got recruited into the recruiting business at one of the bigs, Russell Reynolds. Then I went to Hydrogen Struggles, which was another big. We went public. And then the bust of uh, 2001 happened, and I joined a startup. And now almost 10 years, I've been with Vitalia Winston.
0: Okay. And you're in Boston. I don't know if you mentioned that you're in Boston. Yeah. You are in beautiful Boston. So question for you around multi-generational companies and the trends that you see, in searching for new leadership. I think there was a trend, an upward trend for a lot of years. Are you still seeing that trend, especially now?
1: We've definitely seen the trend, but COVID has thrown a monkey wrench in everything. It's frozen. Our business model recognizes that uncertainty tends to freeze our clients. They don't know which way the wind is going to fill in. They stay at anchor. And COVID has had that effect on, on the business today. A number of searches have completed. And the the change with COVID has been that you have to redefine what your needs are going to be over the next two or three years, because the best candidate pre-COVID may not be the best candidate post-COVID. And that, that's turned a couple of searches into different directions we've experienced. Well, that's
0: a really great point. What are some of the key differences that you're seeing in terms of what companies are looking for now?
1: I think it's it's uh, <laughs> the ability to turn on a dime, put together an interim plan, and measure it very quickly and stay sensitive to whether it's working. You can't set a five-year plan and stick to it. I know at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, there was a Harvard Business School series of Zoom seminars on how to react to it. And the big message there was you have to stick to your core values, what's important, and then build teams that can respond quickly and recognize that the answer now may not be the answer in a month. But you don't have the same certainty surrounding your environment, So, but you have to react quickly. And the core to doing that without getting in trouble is to make sure everybody's paying attention to the core values, which frankly is very similar to the key driver in family-owned businesses.
0: Core values, I think that's an awesome place to sort of start with these companies because, yeah, I have asked the question of different guests that have come on of how have your core values helped you make decisions during this time? It
1: absolutely is. Multi-generational families tend to have spent time defining that and putting it into some sort of a, a document either on their website or internally. Entrepreneurial folks frequently haven't taken the time yet to do that, but particularly in the kind of uncertainty we're dealing with now where people are working from home, there are a whole lot of different changes, but what those fundamentals are is important to I, to spend time thinking about and codifying.
0: Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about transitioning to a non-family CEO. Certainly, you have a lot of experience with this in working with the companies that are looking for that right person to come in and what's that process look like and what are, what are some things that multi-generational companies who don't have a family member to transition to, what are some of the things to consider when they're looking for a non-family CEO?
1: Well, I think that once you're north of even 25 or 30 million dollars, I think the most important thing for setting the foundations for a successful search is having some kind of a board an outside perspective a sounding board to help ownership go forward. I've written a number of articles about this and one of the keys uh, in the smaller company range is that if you bring in a good person from the outside, they're going to bring ideas that may scare the pants off the owner and the owner needs a way to reflect on those ideas and assess them and Extra perspectives that come from even an advisory board are really helpful there. The other side of that coin is that a good CEO does not want to be simply at the whim of an owner. They want to have a way to influence the owner. There was some risk management involved here protecting them that a whim that's reviewed by a board can get on track. And owners frequently are emotional about what they're doing and emotions drive. A lot of decisions. I've been sort of impressed over my career that while you'd like to think that business decisions are made on the basis of what's best for the company, it's my experience both as an IBMer and and as a consultant that at least half of the decision is based on personal motivations. So you have to have somebody to temper that. That's the board.
0: So if a company does not have an advisory board or a fiduciary board, there's that I guess, open space where maybe there's a family council that's helping to drive some of these decisions. Maybe let's talk about it from a couple of different standpoints. A lot of listeners out there, I'm guessing, do not have an advisory board in place, let's say if they're under 30 million, as you said. So if a CEO at some point is starting to think about a transition, generally, how many years out do you think they're sort of having this conversation with themselves or their family? Is it five years out, 10 years out?
1: There's time and there's age. I think it takes at least two or three years for a new board to get its feet on the ground, get its processes in order and get into a cadence and a comfort zone. I think if if you're looking at retiring as a, as a CEO, if you haven't started making plans or thinking about it in your, your early 60s, it gets harder as you get older. And if you reach 70 without having pulled a trigger here, you may end up going out with your boots on and that's not good for the enterprise. And frankly, one of the the most important job a board does is select the new CEO. And we've got lots of (laughs) scar tissue from CEOs who wanna do the process themselves. And we've had to wrestle them back into making sure there's a search committee that has the board involved. So it it takes time and it it takes energy and it, you don't just do it on the fly.
0: Yeah, a board could be extremely helpful in being independent and having a, a more broad perspective, especially if they are independent. And they're not owners, and I'm curious in your experience though when you, if you talk about the CEO who maybe he or she is the primary owner mm-hmm. and they don't have a family successor. What's the thought process for them in letting go? And I'm sure you've had many conversations with people who struggle with that. What's a typical conversation look like in the getting started phase?
1: I was asked a question by a very successful founder owner who said, what are the five most important things for a successful transition to a non-family CEO? Four items I've been talking about and writing about for years and I called a successful CEO had been in the in the saddle for ten years and then kicked up to chairman a search I did quite a few years ago, and he added the fifth item there's a combination of structures and processes. I think that from the structure set, you need board governance, you need some long term incentive so that the new CEO has a way, clearly a way to build personal capital and retire when they want to retire and Private, family-owned companies are very reluctant to give up stock. They don't have to do that. There are ways to do that on a cash basis that make the new CEO act and feel like an owner, but without giving up stock. So those are sort of two structural things. I think the focus on who's going to be successful really comes down to two items. One is fit, or two components to the word fit. And that's something that everybody uses as a and a key term and it is, but what does it really mean? One part of it is culture. You know, will the CEO embrace and become a steward for the core values of the family? That's one of the reasons that's an important starting point. Because they they do become the steward of that of that culture set. And stewardship is perhaps the single term that reflects all of the things that going into being a successful non family CEO. Second piece is what we call competency and that's can they do the job do they have the skills and experience and we go through a process or require that our clients go through a process where we identify the top 5 to 7 competencies that you'd like to see displayed successfully in the recent past for the within the experience of the of the candidate as a marker that they can come do that for us and they're sort of two or three documents that, if you will, or document the first part of the search. One is a specification. It's a job description, but it's more of a marketing document. And it it describes the company, the what needs to get done, the qualifications, and you know, a little bit about compensation without revealing too much. But out of that, we derive a competency model on the basis of, if this is the mission and what has to get done, what competencies would you like to see displayed whether it's strategic assessment, very high EQ, strategic hiring, those kinds of things. And they're, they're unique to each situation. One of the top level descriptions may travel from search to search, but the underpinning documentation that applies to this client is, is unique to each situation. And the competency model is absolutely core in my view, because once you identify all the important things, then you can say, all right, what are the top three? or top four? And what are the ones where you could give up a little on? Because the nice to have versus the must have really helps us go into the marketplace. We can talk a little bit about how we do that. But when we seek advice from people who know the fish pond we're fishing, we have to about two minutes or less in order to focus their attention on what's really important in this situation. And so we have to be very much on the same page with our client. And the the discussions that come out of the competency model and the prioritization of it are absolutely core to getting it done right the first time.
0: Yeah, the competency model you talked about earlier is shifting, too. You might find that some of the skills that more entrepreneurial companies have or intrapreneurial, if folks have worked inside a big company but created a new business or a new product line, that might be more of a fit for some companies undergoing change in the future. Absolutely. And EQ, you, you brought that up, and that's come up a couple of times on other shows too. And I think you, you do need a high degree of EQ to deal with some family dynamics. As a candidate or somebody who's talking to the executive search firm, what types of questions do you get from them most often so that they can judge whether or not it's a fit for them?
1: I'm not sure I can give you specific questions, but they tend to revolve around how does the company work? Um, what is the decisioning process? Who are the key voices? Um, is this managed professionally? And my simple observation is that the best candidates come from well-run, well-governed companies. And if they don't see the kind of uh, processes and structures in place, they're going to be worried that this company will not be run as as well as it could be. Now, they're going to be asked to bring in some of that for sure. But if you start from ground zero, it's higher risk for a, a, a quality candidate. And some of the best candidates will withdraw.
0: Do candidates ask about in a gentle and professional way, but understanding the CEO's desire to really truly step back and separate from the day to day.
1: They do. It's the single most general question that that when I, when I take on a search, I talk to people within the company, you know, I need to understand the culture from, uh, from the recruiter's perspective as well. And at the CEO level, the question always is, will they let go? And, um, I can tell a story about a hundred million dollar family business had a five person outside board. Um, it had a family council. It was very well consulted to by leaders in in the family business arena. And but they had a the youngest of three brothers who ran the company. Uh, each in turn um, had a real control. Um, psychological uh, issue, if you will. And we talked about it and we set up things like a search committee where there was an outside board member as co-head uh, of the search committee. Uh, once the candidate was appointed, we made sure that there was a, uh, uh, an outside lead director to, who could talk on behalf of the outside directors. But interestingly, there was so much concern from the way this CEO had operated that the family council, in conjunction with the board, set up tripwires that if you don't step back and let the new guy who's going to have a different tool set and a different way of doing things, if you don't let him uh, or her do their job and you, you... Get, you kept fiddling with things and getting down into management, uh, those tripwires could result in him being thrown off the board. And guess what? Within a year and a half, he was thrown off the board.
0: <laughs> and he had bought in ahead of time to those tripwires? He knew exactly what they were?
1: Yeah. Well, he, um, I wasn't privy to all those conversations, but the board made it pretty clear to him that, hey, you have to step back. Yeah. And there's symbolic things that you can do. I mean,
0: what are some examples of that?
1: Well, he had uh, they moved his office out of the corporate headquarters. Uh, there were articles in the the uh, you know the internal company magazine that was published quarterly uh, that talked about those transitions. You have to make uh, they held his feet to the fire because there were some transitions where the new CEO took on more and more responsibility over a four to six month period, so that He didn't get overwhelmed at the beginning, Um, and those things were committed to, and the board made sure that they happened, if you will.
0: Yeah, and again, in this example, there's a board, which really is, is so helpful to not only setting up the tripwires, but holding the CEO accountable to their actions. I have some listeners that have submitted questions around situations where they are outside higher CEOs, and there is no board in place. And the day-to-day crossing the border <laughs> on a day-to-day basis is more acute than they would have expected. And so I did want to talk to you about that because, again, from a listener standpoint, I did get some questions on this. And it seems to be that the handoff that founder or owner you know transitioned to the CEO is really the key. And so certainly building trust and rapport is part of that, is going through the process and getting onboarded. But then over time, how should the current founder CEO, right, who's transitioned out, how should they be thinking about truly letting go? And then for the new CEO to have the appreciation that that person might want to stay relevant, but not cross that line and going from kind of oversight, if you will, to Management?
1: To answer that, I'm going to uh, go back to a, the earlier question you asked, and I didn't give you the five, I gave you four culture, competency, uh, board governance, and LTIP. Mindset was the fifth. And to get at that, um, I called the, the CEO of, of this that I had placed as COO like 12 years prior and asked why did it work and this was a bigger company i would say this was a NYSE company that had uh, about 600 million he said this why did it work he said it's about respect and rapport the outgoing chairman needs to respect that the new ceo will come with a different toolkit and of course they have to like each other the rapport has to be there but they have to keep that in mind because there are going to come times when the new guy is going to do things differently and that's going to create some tension. But having that mindset of respect and rapport um, can keep it from, from blowing up and it's not easy at times.
0: Yeah. And it just probably takes time to build that respect and rapport. And I suppose the trust, especially if someone's name is on the door, they've you know, hired this person in, they have the trust in their capabilities, but at the same time, they're just not quite ready to let go.
1: Well, part of that, and sort of the second piece of that maybe, if you look five years out ahead, hopefully the company's going to be larger than it is today. A players aren't going to sign into a job that's just going to keep the company where it is. So you're really hiring somebody to do a job bigger than the one you have. And that may be a hard concept to get your head around as a CEO, but you really should be looking up at the new candidates, the new CEO candidates, not down. If you're looking down at them, that means they're already smaller than you and you're and they're not gonna, it's a, it's a high risk that they're not gonna be the person to take the company to the next level and grow it. So I think it's important and it comes with the respect in the rapport, that the mindset be one of, think five years ahead, what are we going to need then? And and how are we going to get there? And that usually means somebody who's more senior, um, perhaps than you had imagined. And, and you're looking at least across, if not up to the candidates. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. It does. I want to go back to aligning interests on the financial side, because you're right, if the goal is to grow the company, and in five years, we're all going to be benefiting. You mentioned that equity is not always part of the compensation package for an outside CEO. And there are other ways to align interests for long-term incentive plans from a cash basis, et cetera. I was wondering if you could dive a little bit deeper on that.
1: Well, there are cash approaches. And I guess the first thing I would say, and I've had people tell me they wanted to do this themselves and set up a long-term incentive program. And my advice to them is hire a professional, hire a compensation consultant who's used to dealing with private, um, smaller companies. Um, I've collaborated with one here in Boston on, on a half a dozen different projects, and it makes a huge difference. Um, and the reason is there, there are so many laws and they change on occasion that affect what you can and should do that you don't want to do it on your own and that might, it might cost 15 20 grand to set something up like that but it will pay dividends and and getting that professional uh, perspective is important we're anecdotal we're in the in the deal flow but we don't know the details of of what's best today frequently things are are based on ebitda there may be annual valuations uh, growth and value you also have to create enough incentive so that the CEO can attract and retain a good team it's not just what does the CEO get usually by 75 million in, in revenues a company will have an LTI for the top three people and by the time they're hundred million that, that's probably about five people so that's something that needs professional attention and frankly, One of the themes that the Family Firm Institute, for instance, has stressed for the last six years, and which I embrace totally, is that it takes a village to support a family business. Nobody has all the expertise you need. You need a good um, sort of family uh, counselor, uh, but you also need compensation, legal, investment banking. There's a series of skills that need to be available to the, the ownership to To really do the job right as you move up through the you know 30 to 100 million dollar range
0: do you see typically that sharing equity is for certain types or categories of companies or is it all over the map i
1: think the (laughs) the general feeling is i don't want to give up stock so let's find a way to uh, create a a pool of, of money that's set aside and has a vesting schedule um, I had one client, $70 million manufacturing company, where they, <laughs> the uh, chairman wanted to hold all of the deferred compensation in, in the company until the candidate turned 65. Well, it was an unusual hire. They hired a 43-year-old CEO, and his response was, wait a minute, I want to be able to take my long-term earnings out on a vesting schedule and invest them and then lose them just like everybody else, which proved he has a sense of humor. And he was the right guy. He tripled the value of the ESOP in about two years. Pretty impressive. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the failed attempts are as important as the successful ones. Can you share any stories where the person brought in from the outside ultimately was not the right fit?
1: Yes. Uh, there's, there was one as a hundred and $50 million company that made pumps, it was the fifth generation of ownership. So there were 114 cousins. And return on investment gets hard when the denominator gets that big. <laughs> so they brought in someone uh, from an industrial background. And he he was excused a year later. Uh, there was an interesting dynamic in the beginning, because they were trying to set up his Compensation program with so many measures and metrics before he was under the tent and knew whether anything was accomplishable and he, he he responded by saying, You know what i I feel like they're setting up the tax code for me, and I don't even know what the fundamentals are yeah, because they had a large cousin cohort, they were valuing the company every year anyway, and they just said, all right, we'll just measure value increase, but it didn't work out uh, he he felt he was too independent. He didn't really want to take input from the board. Now, it was complicated a little bit by the fact that when they let him go a year later, half the board resigned. So it's hard to tell where the problem was. But that goes to the point that investor relations doesn't go away in a family business. It's quite different. People are there for different reasons. They, They marry in, they inherit they, they have varying levels of experience and, and, and expertise around business. Uh, it's highly emotional. Their, their self-concept may be tied up in being an owner. There's just a whole lot, uh, and, and I did an article on you know, what it takes to do IR uh, in a family business. And it's, it's both reactive and proactive, and it's communicate, communicate, communicate. So, in that other company where the where the CEO hit the tripwires, or excuse me, the chairman hit the tripwires, right? The CEO said it took three years to get the board cadence comfortable.
0: The board cadence after the chairman left?
1: Uh, well, actually, as he was coming in. Okay. Yeah. How do we report? What are we going to change to professionalize and get everybody covered the way they need and want to be covered? A lot of education. And a lot of the education goes into how do we ensure that the coming generation, even if they're not in the company, will be wise owners.
0: And how do they do that? How do they educate the next
1: generation? Family meetings, maybe once or twice a year, and having sessions for youngsters, getting them involved in ways that give them a feel for the, the pride and the, the, the business they're in, um, getting involved perhaps in in philanthropy. So giving them a feel for the company starting back in their early teens, not just waiting until they're in their 20s.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I've talked to some others on this show about that. And it can be a very effective process for mentoring too, if you have folks that are in their teens and then their 20s. And then when they're starting in their career, whether it's in that company or otherwise, whatever the right time is for them to join and then growing their career in the family business on that note, question for you, how do you know whether it's time for that heir apparent to rise and assume the role? How do you know whether they're qualified or prepared? Does your firm get involved in any of those types of assessments? We talked about outside assessments, but what's that? What about inside assessments? We,
1: we certainly do that. I can't say that, that we we're asked to do that a lot because those are usually pretty emotional and, and sensitive conversations. we had experience with a company called Caliper, which uh, is, is a very deep dive psychological test. It's online and takes maybe an hour and a half to, to complete. We encourage companies and we've used it successfully in a number of situations. But not only do the candidates get evaluated, the top management gets evaluated so they can look at how the intersection goes, what the fit is. Um, and those perspectives can be very helpful. Um, and again, I would go back to the idea of having a board. You, you don't want to just do this alone. And frankly, most founders or or CEOs, particularly of smaller businesses, uh, will have some blind spots around Junior. And maybe they've trained Junior to do the job that, that they had 20 years ago, but that's not the job for the next decade. And, and somebody needs to be able to tell them that with a clear-eyed perspective.
0: There may be a lot of listeners who are in that category of do not yet have an advisory board. What advice do you have for those owners and CEOs that have not yet created an advisory board? What do they need to do to get started? What should they
1: think about? Certainly the perspective of, of, you know, what keeps me up at night? What are the things I'm going to have to wrestle with for the next five years? You certainly want to have an advisory board that's copacetic is comfortable interacting. So friends tend to be the first place you go. But that takes the fit piece, the competency piece has to be considered. And so I think it's important to sort of build a matrix of, you know, where what are the things we're going to be facing and do we have any expertise in those areas? And then building I call it a sort of a white space analysis if you if you build a matrix of what do we have and what are we missing? You need to find people who can fill in the pieces that are going to be important that you're missing for that perspective.
0: Is the white space because of their management team, or is the white space because of themselves and their skill sets?
1: It could be either. It could be either. I, I built a board last year for a manufacturing company, and I talked just last week to the chairman and CEO, and they've built a very profitable and uh, successful company. And I said, well, what was, what was the big thing you found? I said, well, it was a little more work for me, but what it really did was it took all my management team and made them straighten up and, and, and be more precise in the way they approach things because the board challenged them. Is that, is that responsive to your question?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a really great example. There are so many things to talk about there's so many different aspects, but you've covered a lot of ground. So last question, just curiosity about you. What's something that you do as a daily habit that others might be curious about?
1: <laughs> I make lists. <laughs> I've got things to deal with um, that I can't keep track of them all unless it's written down. So I, I'm driven by lists.
0: <laughs> and what's on your nightstand? What are you reading?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I've found over time that I really love the historical novels, where you learn about a culture, a different place and time uh, with a rollicking story. You know, whether it's about the Aztecs or about the Visigoths or about, you know, uh, the Far East, you learn something and it's a good story. And that's what I enjoy.
0: (laughs) And if you have one piece of advice for owners and CEOs out there to stay positive and resilient through the next phase of the what we call the new normal, what would it be?
1: You're not alone, and you don't have to make all the decisions yourself. I think reaching out to people whose expertise you respect, whether they're formally or informally associated with a company, I've talked to a, a number of people who... Um, you know, people tend to have their own sort of mentors, but here's a concept. Um, if you're the CEO, you know, you're you're probably doing that. It can be lonely up there, but think of, of managing your personal space with a board of your own of mentors. Not every mentor is going to have expertise in every dimension of what's in, of, you know, where you need help. So it, building your own network of folks who can help you with different aspects of your life. I think is, is probably good advice.
0: That is sage advice. Someone once told me that you can have a cabinet. He's like, think of it as your kitchen cabinet. And you might have people in there that you turn to from time to time for guidance and for ideas. And, and for CEOs, it may eventually turn into an advisory board, but that might be an interim step. It's very important. So one last question for you, Bruce, before we adjourn here. Do you have any favorite quotes about leadership or entrepreneurship?
1: Not specifically. I just think as a as a small company or family company, the term stewardship, I think, needs thought and definition. It's funny, you know, I I've been trying to do a lot on EQ over the last few years, and it's still a fuzzy concept. Um, still in its early its adolescent stage of development, I think. But the when I wrap it all up, um, stewardship, however you define it is so important. And people talk in ways that either convey that or don't. And that's what I find is a is a key uh, dimension when I'm evaluating potential candidates for, for family businesses.
0: You shared a lot of insights with us today, and I really, really appreciate it. If someone wants to learn more about Batalia Winston, how should they find them online?
1: Sure. It's battaliawinston.com. Um, a lot of what I've talked about today has been reduced to uh, short, like 600, 800 word articles. Uh, and it, on our website, there's a, an area for research and, and white papers. And there are about 30 of them there. And about a third of them are about family business.
0: Wonderful. They're great resources. I've read all of them. And I'll include the links in the show notes as well. Bruce, thank you so much for being here today. It was great to speak with you.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me
0: innovation, transition, growth. Easy to say, but hard to do. If you're an entrepreneur facing these challenges, I get it. I work with businesses from small to big for strategic planning with your team to achieve your vision. Visit smalldotbig.com to schedule a call with me. I'd love to connect with you. Be sure to catch the next Succession Stories episode with more insights for next generation entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening.